Hi, Sarah. How's Georgia? Georgia's lovely. I am uh, having a good time down here working on a secret project that you guys will all hear about soon enough. Um, but for now, in today's news, I was in Seattle at the beginning of this month hosting a storytelling event with the low-wage workers in Seattle, and today Josh has a report up at The Nation that um, those fast food workers in Seattle are on strike. That makes them, is it the seventh city now, Josh, that's on strike? It does. If you count the strike, which included fast food workers, by federally contracted workers in D.C. last week, that would make this the seventh in eight weeks. That's pretty exciting. So Seattle has one of the highest minimum wages in the country. It's over $9 an hour, and it's indexed to inflation. But even with that, the workers there still say they can't make ends meet on minimum wage. Um, So like everywhere else, they are calling for $15 and a union. Um, Their campaign's called Good Jobs Seattle. It's backed by Working Washington um, and, like everywhere else, the Service Employees International Union. Um, And so we will see, and we will obviously bring you much more about the fast food movement in the future on Belabored. This week in non-strike news, or what is at least for the moment non-strike news, although we'll see where it goes, at Patriot Coal, a fight that we talked about in the news roundup, Some time ago, a story that Mike Elk and Alec McGillis and others have been following closely, a bankruptcy judge ruled with management in a case where workers have alleged, and their union, the United Mine Workers of America, has alleged that a company found a very creative way to shuffle off the responsibility for its retirees' benefits. So here you have a company, Patriot Coal, which was created by Peabody Energy. It's a company that was created with more retirees than employees and more liabilities than assets, and then went bankrupt. So the union has alleged that this was rotten from the start, that basically this company, Patriot Coal, is a legal fiction that was created to fail in order to free the parent company, Peabody Energy, from its obligations. And they say the the bankruptcy judge is now allowing that scheme to move forward. So this is something that we'll see other companies watching. This is something that the union has warned we could see spreading elsewhere. And it's a major development in a fight between the company and the union, which will now continue as both sides say they're going to attempt to negotiate some kind of agreement in the shadow of this major legal blow to the union. And Peabody Energy has a pretty bad reputation in terms of both labor and environmental issues, right? You know, I believe so. And this makes me particularly excited for one of our segments coming up shortly on the podcast. But so stay tuned after the rest of the news roundup. Certainly. So while I'm down here in Georgia, I am not in Savannah, but um, this Saturday in Savannah, the uh, port truck drivers at the Port of Savannah, which is the fourth largest port in the country, are going to be holding an event, um, sort of like the storytelling event I mentioned before that happened in Seattle. Um, It's called Stand Up for Savannah, Make the Port Work for Us. And these are the truck drivers, again, who are classified, um, they say misclassified, as independent contractors. That means they have to pay for their own trucks, their own equipment. Um, In some cases, the companies that they contract with, that they work for, make them 
lease cell phones from them. Occasionally they have to lease a specific truck from the company. And often because they do essentially piecework, um, they're coming out at the end after their expenses making less than minimum wage. This is, again, this is the fourth largest port in the country. Um, some $14 billion of goods come through this port every year, including another hint of what's coming later in this podcast, a bunch of things that go to a 6 million square foot Walmart warehouse in Statesboro, Georgia. Um, so these port truck drivers are part of a growing movement among these port truck drivers around the country saying that they're not really independent contractors, that they don't actually have the right to use their trucks in any way that they see fit, that they are employees of this company and they should be paid and respected as employees. Um, and you can check that out if you are in Savannah this weekend on Saturday. Um, the website is standupforsavannah.com. So many connections within our Labor News Roundup. Seattle, in fact, also has seen port truck drivers organizing and saw a, a quite unusual strike by these workers who said to the boss, as I reported for Alternate uh, last year, well, if you say we're not your employees, then we're not going to come to work. Instead, we're going to go to the Capitol, the lobby, and to rally for the cause of making us employees and not independent contractors. And that's a fight that's been cited by some of the organizers in Seattle involved in the strike today as an example of foment among low-wage workers. In other so far non-strike news, the Chicago <laughs> Teachers Union... Or this which, could be post-strike news. That is true. Post-strike, and we never know what will turn out to be pre-strike news, right? But uh, in, in post-strike news, the Chicago Teachers Union, a frequent topic on Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, has filed a lawsuit, which is now the third lawsuit by critics and opponents against the school closures in Chicago, the closure of 50 schools, a topic that we've discussed on the, in the past on the podcast. One of the things that's interesting to me about these school closures in Chicago and the related story of tremendous budget crisis in Philadelphia and the school system is that in both cases we're talking about two of the cities that have seen the most experiments with the mainstream model in the United States of education reform. So we're seeing what people who listen to both our podcast and Saturday Night Live might call the more cowbell approach to education reform, where whatever the problem is, the solution is handing over more power to people who aren't elected, people who don't teach in the schools, people who are willing to pony up philanthropic funding. And so Philadelphia and Chicago are both cities where more than a decade ago we saw what was touted as innovative school reform, where we've seen a series of problems since then, and each time things go bad, there is then a political opportunity for the mainstream corporate-backed school reform agenda to take another step forward. We see that in Chicago, and at the very end of the podcast, when we talk about the stories we wish we'd written, I'll tout one about the efforts and the struggle underway in Philadelphia. Life ain't perfect, but it's all worth it. So systematic, be part of that circuit. Robotic at work when I'm counting them pyramids. If you're naive, then I know you ain't hearing this. Hundreds of years, everybody been serious. Greedy ass system that's coming to an end. I got bills. So 
This is the moment in the podcast where we go a bit deeper and from Belabored's New York World Headquarters, I have some questions for Sarah about a New York-based story that she came out with this week at In These Times. The story is called Bad Green Jobs. And first, Sarah, for those who are not here in New York, what is City Bike? Why has it been so anticipated, at least in certain circles? And what is the backstory about Alta Bicycle Share, the company that you wrote about this week? So City Bike is named after Citibank, which is one of its main sponsors, but I will get to that a little bit later. Um, but it's a public bicycle sharing program. Um, now, public meaning that it is um, authorized by the city, that there are these bike racks all over at least certain parts of the city for now. Eventually, they say that they want to expand it all throughout the five boroughs. Um, but for now, it's basically in lower Manhattan and um, the more shall we say, high-end parts of Brooklyn. Um, and what it is is a program where you can take these bikes for one-way trips. So you can ride, you put in, um, you either sign up for a year membership or you can buy a shorter pass um, and you can take this bike, ride it from one bike rack to the next and leave it at another one. Um, and so it builds off of programs um, in Europe it builds off of, most importantly, Capital Bike Share, a program in Washington, D.C., which maybe some of our users, our listeners, excuse me, are users of. And so you brought an angle to this story that had not made it into some of the coverage, which is the question of how this company, Alta Bicycle Share, which we've seen often running in Washington, D.C., treats the people who do the work that make this bike share possible. Right. And this is really, so here's a little background on me for our um, listeners. My family actually owns a bicycle rental business in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, and I lived there for, well, a couple of years in high school and then three years in my 20s, basically running a bicycle rental business. And the interesting thing about these public bike share programs is that you don't see the workers, Right, You go up to this cool little solar-powered rack and you swipe your credit card and you take the bike out and you go for a ride and you drop it off at the rack. You don't have to ever talk to a person. So it's easy to forget that there are people who are doing the work of making this program function. There are people who built the bikes. There are people who are regular employees to keep the bikes maintained so that they're safe and functional. And to make sure that there are enough bikes and enough empty spaces at these racks, um, they have drivers who take bikes around in trucks to make sure that they're balanced, that there's the right number at these bike racks. So you may never, you could use this program for years and probably never run across any of the workers, but there's a good According to the employee that I spoke to from Capital Bike Share in D.C., um, 30 to 50 people who are working on a regular basis to make sure this program runs. And those workers in D.C. are alleging that they were underpaid. So those workers say, well, actually, according to their contract, they are legally required because of the um, Service Contract Act, which regulates jobs that are paid for with federal funding and that are contracted with the federal or the Washington, D.C. government, they're required to pay the prevailing wage in that area. So according to the contract, the prevailing wage for a bicycle repairer is $14.43 an hour with benefits. 
Um, the worker that I spoke to says he started out at $13 an hour and was never paid benefits, and that this is the case for most of the people who worked there. And this, the Service Contract Act, um, including the requirement of benefits, applies to part-time as well as full-time workers. So some people outside of and skeptical of the labor movement, occasionally some people inside the labor movement have argued that given all the obstacles facing unions, given all the changes in the economy, really salvation and uplift for workers is going to come from just changing the law, organizing workers to change the law to protect workers better and taking the struggle out of the workplace because it's so difficult there and just moving it into legislation and regulation. So why is it, you think, that in a case like this, you pass a law and then these non-union workers still are not being paid in compliance, allegedly, with what politicians put down on paper? I mean, right, that's always the question when we're talking about improving the law, right? The Service Contract Act is a pretty good law. This requires decent pay and benefits. There are, you know, there are some problems with the idea of prevailing wage, which is that if you are in a place like Georgia, where I am now, where the wages tend to be lower anyway, you're not raising wages, you're just not undercutting them. But aside from that, this actually does protect the rights of these workers to not be completely ripped off. But the worker that I spoke to, you know, he complained to the Department of Labor. They are actively investigating the case. They have confirmed this, but nothing has happened yet. The worker that I spoke to had left the company. In addition to the wage complaints, they've also got complaints about safety and conditions. And unless there's actually a really active mechanism to enforce these laws, there's very little that the law can actually do. The workers have to they have to report it. They have to keep pursuing it. Um, this worker reached out to me because the city bike program launching in New York afforded them another news hook. Um, they're organizing on coworker.org. The page is bikeshare.coworker.org. This company really wants to be a face of a new kind of green transportation and green jobs. And you know, the workers at this point are, are trying to target them around that issue because, yeah, they really still don't have a lot of power in the workplace. And so let's talk about this question of green jobs. Is there a lesson here with what we see happening with Capital Bike Share, with the hype and the reality around City Bike in terms of what green jobs mean what what a robust sense of sustainability would look like? I mean, this is an ongoing problem, right? And we've talked about it a little on this program before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it much more in the future. The idea that there's a disconnect between labor and the, you know, the environmental, the green movement, that the idea of sustainability in many cases is not inclusive of real sustainability for the workers. Um, you can talk about this in the food movement. People like Sarah Jayaraman from the Restaurant Opportunity Center have talked about this, that you know people are more interested in the conditions that the animals they eat were raised in than the people who pick their tomatoes, say, or the people who serve their food in a restaurant. And it's the same question when you start talking about other kinds of green jobs, right? 
it's not good enough for those jobs to be working on an environmentally friendly program. Um, those jobs also have to help people sustain their living, their family, their own, you know, ability to have a bicycle and, um, you know, eat healthy food. A real green economy has to be a much more inclusive one than the one we have now. It's not enough to just have low-wage jobs, but at a green company. It's better than Walmart because it's, it's green. That's really not enough if you're still paying Walmart wages. Walmart also brands itself as quite green, and they put up a website recently touting a quote from Bill Clinton about how green they are these days. Bill Clinton, whose wife used to be on the board of Walmart. Indeed, and who, according to the journalist Charles Fishman, was meeting with the then CEO of Walmart after his presidency, precisely about how to mend bridges with some of the company's environmental critics, something that arguably the company did rather successfully in the very narrow sense of addressing the reputation problem. Um, we'll get to Walmart in just a second. The, just, the last thing that I did right. want to say about this is that in New York, the workers on this program will not be covered by the Service Contract Act, um, nor will they be subject to New York's living wage law. Because of that Citibank funding that I mentioned earlier, um, Citibank ponied up $41 million to have their name all over these bikes, um, plus another $6.5 million from MasterCard, the workers at Citibike aren't subject to any law other than minimum wage. But I did speak to Letitia James from the New York City Council, um, and she did say that she and her colleagues at the Progressive Caucus within the City Council will be looking into this to make sure that the city is not, whether or not it's explicitly funding this program, it is supporting this program, and it will be getting the proceeds from this program to make sure that they're not supporting low wages and underpayment. So this does bring us to a a recurring belabored podcast topic, which is the banks, something that you have spent, spent a good deal of your career writing about and wrestling with. In some ways, there's a parallel here, it seems, to models like having merit pay for your teachers paid for by Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Right? What do you think are the pros and cons of having a program like this paid for through corporate sponsorship rather than having the city employ or directly contract and pay for the work that's involved in providing the service? I'm old-fashioned in that I think that public programs should be public. But more importantly, so one of the things, as I mentioned, about the city bike program is that it is placed in more affluent neighborhoods in New York. A program that is funded by essentially advertising dollars, they're going to want to target to people who can afford to buy things to use their products. There's no incentive to have advertising funding in poor neighborhoods. The analogy I've been using this week is the difference between the nonprofit program Philly Car Share in Philadelphia and Zipcar, which is a for-profit company. Um, Philly Car Share, because they are a nonprofit that has a social good mission, actually tries to have cars available for use all across the city. Um, they're much more dedicated to that idea than Zipcar, which just wants to make money off of people who have it. So that's one thing to watch out for. Also, yeah, Citibank, of all the companies out there that should be getting the benefit of you know, green 
green jobs, green, you know, bicycles, all of that. As my friend who works for 350.org pointed out, Citibank is a huge investor in coal, in all sorts of dirty energy. And as my friend Alexis Goldstein, who is uh, somewhat of an expert on Wall Street's uh, misdeeds, points out that Citibank is literally the bank that pioneered sort of deregulation, that Robert Rubin, who used to be President Clinton, again, his Treasury Secretary, um, went from Treasury to Citibank right after helping deregulate all of the lovely financial uh, tools that helped crash our economy in the first place. So the question of whether Citibank is the the partner that the city should be promoting with this program is a big one. Belabored podcast, now with more Bill Clinton. <laughs> Sadly, too much Bill Clinton. Can we have less Bill Clinton next time? But since we're talking about Bill Clinton... Why don't we switch to some talk about Arkansas? Josh, um, tell us why you're going to Arkansas soon. So I'll be going to Arkansas for The Nation magazine to cover the Walmart shareholder convention, which takes place each year. It is quite an event. In the past, it's been emceed by celebrities like Will Smith. It is both a formal meeting at which shareholders are given the opportunity to vote on resolutions, board members are re-elected or elected for the first time, millions of dollars in compensation is approved, and so forth, and also a spectacle where Walmart celebrates itself. The company (laughs) brings workers from around the country who they believe will not be uppity to come and soak in the Walmart culture and join together in a celebration of the company and its accomplishments and its business model. It has recently become a site of protest by Walmart workers. Last year, one of the first major actions prior to the strikes that our Walmart, the union-backed retail workers group, was involved in was bringing workers to the shareholder meeting where they introduced a shareholder resolution about executive compensation and where they were trying to organize some of the Walmart workers who had been brought there by the company. This year, as I reported this week for The Nation, there will be a bigger buildup. We see already, starting on Tuesday, Walmart workers have gone out on strike, and they're going on strike, walking off the job, and then getting on caravans that are traveling around the country to do events, and eventually land in Arkansas, where they'll be trying to change the narrative and get some organizing done and cast a different kind of spotlight on Walmart. So in terms of the workers who are on strike right now and are joining this caravan, um, so you mentioned in your piece at The Nation that this is the first time that they're having prolonged strikes rather than these one-day strikes that we've seen. But in terms of while this is still a small minority of Walmart employees, doesn't the going out on on a prolonged strike raise the question of being permanently replaced at work? So, as we've talked about before on Dissent Magazine's belabored podcast, one of the challenges of a serious campaign where you don't win right away is the question of how you escalate, how you escalate effectively. And certainly, one way to do that is to get bigger, another is to get deeper, and in this case, Declaring that workers will be out on strike for at least 10 days, perhaps beyond that, is certainly one form of escalation where before we've seen one and two day strikes. 
Now, as you say, the longer people are out on strike, the more of a risk there is of being permanently replaced. For folks who are not labor law nerds, but are listening to the Belabored podcast, there is a arguably comical distinction under U.S. labor law between being fired and being permanently replaced. So under the New Deal National Labor Relations Act, it is generally illegal to punish people by so-called firing them for going out on strike, but it is often legal to so-called permanently replace them. That's when they go on strike, you announce you've brought in someone else to do their job, and then you don't let them have their job back. One of the things that we've seen in a number of these campaigns that we've been talking about recently, whether it's the fast food workers' efforts, these federally contracted workers who are out on strike, the Walmart strikes, strikes by workers in Twin Cities, Target stores who who do janitorial work under contracts, is a strategy of trying to maximize the impact of these strikes while minimizing the risk. One of the ways that they've often minimized the risk is by only going on strike for one day. I asked last year Wilma Liebman, the former Obama-appointed chair of the National Labor Relations Board, about this, and her analysis was that if you announce ahead of time that you will only be on strike for one day, it would be very difficult for the company to legally, without violating the law, right. bring someone in and tell you that you're permanently replaced when you've already said that you're going to be back within 24 hours. That doesn't mean companies wouldn't do it, but it means that right. it would be difficult for them to stay within the law while doing that. So when you go out for 10 days, you are giving up that protection. There are other protections that these workers have. One significant one is what's called an unfair labor practices strike. When workers are found by the government to be out on strike because of violations of law by management, it then is generally not legal to permanently replace them. Now, it's not up to the workers whether it's an unfair labor practice strike. It would be up to the National Labor Relations Board to assess that. In this case, as in most of the other strikes we're talking about, the workers have said that it absolutely is an unfair labor practices strike. In fact, our Walmart recently filed 30 additional unfair labor practice charges. So these workers do potentially have that protection from permanent replacement. What will be much more significant, though, than the law is, judging by history, the question of what Walmart thinks it can get away with. Right. And when we're talking about these jobs where largely the workers are not getting the hours that they need anyway, it's very easy for these companies that already make a habit of, you know, slicing your hours. So, you know, one week you got 30, the next week you get 25, then maybe you get 20 to just keep hacking away at that without ever actually letting people go, which also is an interesting strategy to drive people to quit. But that's another story. We will, I'm sure, talk much more about this particular issue here on Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast in the future. So in terms of the caravan to the shareholders meeting, um, for those of you who have not been to shareholder meeting protests before, the only people who can get inside are people who have shares of the company. Now, you can have one share of the company, or you can have many, many, many shares of the company. um, And the people with many, many shares of the company are the ones who really get paid attention to. But 
So did they have a strategy for getting workers inside? Um, do you know if there are plans to disrupt the meeting or any plans to try to take action of any kind within the meeting? It is expected that there will be workers inside. As you say, many workers own at, at least a, a small amount of stock in the company. And right. as before, only in a more intense way and now with a deeper level of organizing behind them, the workers will be pursuing really two goals, one of which is about going to those workers who were flown in by Walmart rather than being brought by the union-backed Our Walmart campaign and talking to them. And in fact, last year, the organizers say that when a speech was made by one of the Our Walmart members on the floor about scheduling, many of the workers who had been brought there by the company were listening attentively and were demonstrating support. At the same time, of course, this is also an opportunity as part of a larger comprehensive campaign to change the story about Walmart, to get between Walmart and its customers, particularly its shareholders, the kind of media story that it wants to tell. And so we're going to see a number of actions, as we already are, but escalating towards the convention that target members of Walmart's board, which includes some high-profile folks like Yahoo CEO Marissa Meyer, who saw, not for the first time, Walmart uh-huh. workers protesting at her mansion this week. In this case, they were on strike. <laughs> Marissa Meyer, who has her own labor problems. Indeed, indeed. Yahoo declined to comment to me regarding allegations regarding Walmart. We'll also see... Attempts to draw scrutiny to the working conditions for Walmart workers in the company's stores, as well as the conditions in the Walmart supply chain. There are workers on these caravans who were fired by a Walmart-contracted warehouse. And we're also going to see these workers drawing attention to the company's issues abroad, including this alleged bribery in Mexico and other countries. Mm -hmm. And more dramatically these factory deaths in Bangladesh. Right. Right. Um, So we've seen lots of protests at shareholder meetings in recent years, at bank shareholder meetings. Um, I went to a Morgan Stanley shareholder meeting last year, actually, with some local activists from New York City. But very little has changed because of this. Um, At that Morgan Stanley meeting... They sort of just let the protesters get up and mic check them, and then, you know, the shareholders rubber stamped every proposal, and then everybody left. So, in terms of building actual power to force change at some of these companies, what do you think of this in terms of what it's actually doing to build real power? Well, I think the jury will be out until we see what kind of leadership development comes out of these actions, but I think. In a comprehensive campaign like this, and in a long, drawn-out struggle like this, any time that the company is going to be inviting a spotlight, you would expect that people who are engaged in an ugly struggle with the company would want to be there too, changing the color, so to speak, of the spotlight, or dragging the spotlight in a different direction, and that they will. And some of the shareholder resolutions that have been put forward by union-backed groups have gotten a decent showing, at least by the non-Walton contingent of the Walmart shareholders, though they haven't passed. 
we will, I expect, see because of what these workers are doing a different tenor of coverage than we would in otherwise than we would otherwise. And in particular, the fact that these are workers who are on strike rather than other kinds of protesters or workers who took a day off to come is an escalation and is a different kind of story. And there's reason to expect, I think, that at least some in the media will treat it differently, given that we're talking about people, again, who are on strike for over a week in order to be there. That said, the workers in any given day who've participated in an R Walmart action that we have seen have been less than one out of every thousand Walmart direct U.S. employees. And right. so that constituency on its own is not going to transform the company. These days, labor struggles like this, you cannot move a company in a significant way unless you convince them that fighting you is actually going to be more painful than making big concessions to you. And that is very hard to do, particularly against Walmart. And so the question is, how effectively are these workers developing their own leadership, developing their coworkers' leadership, and bringing more of their coworkers in? When I asked Dan Schlotterman, who's been a key strategist in the R Walmart campaign, who's an official with the UFCW, about what we should make of the fact that six months later there hasn't been something that's been bigger, that's involved more workers than the Black Friday strike, his response was to say that the focus has been about engaging and organizing people who got excited on Black Friday, deepening the leadership development, figuring out ways to escalate, and that he recognizes that they will be judged on numbers. What he said to me for the nation was that they will have to prove by the end of this year that they are getting bigger, and he said that they will. So that's something to watch. That is certainly something to watch, and I am sure that we will be doing much more of that. Um, And we very much look forward to Josh's reporting back from his trip to Arkansas. We are very much looking forward to Sarah's reporting back from her very secret trip to Georgia. We love the South here on Belabored, and we would love to tell more stories about organizing in the South. Please do, if you have them, tweet them at us at hashtag Belabored, um, at Descent Magazine. We would love to hear more. Speaking of tweeting at Descent Magazine, Sarah, do you have a very exciting, recurring Belabored segment to reveal at this moment? So we have been discussing ways that we can make Belabored more exciting, and we want to start doing explainers. Basically, we know that not everybody out there listening to us um, is quite as big a labor nerd as we might be. There might be questions that you have. There might be terms that we use that you're not familiar with. Um, There might be terms that you read somewhere that you're not familiar with. And we would like to help make those clear. So we would love it if you would send us your requests for explainers. Again, you can tweet them at us at hashtag belabored. Um, You can leave them on the website at Descent Magazine. You can tweet at me or at Josh. We would love to know what you want to know. So please do let us know what you'd like to hear. This brings us to what long-time eight-week listeners will know is the ARG. I wish I had written that segment. Sarah, this week, if you were to be ejected from a building on the grounds of excessive envy, what is the piece that you would be being envious of? 
So quite literally, I wanted to write this particular piece. Um, Nicholas Lehman at The New Republic has a review of education reformer Michelle Rhee's um, memoir, which is titled Radical, with absolutely no sense of irony. The article is titled How Michelle Rhee Misled Education Reform, and it is about the mythology of Michelle Rhee, right? That she was a teacher with Teach for America, and she learned how, that she had to be tough. And then she went on to found nonprofits to be the Washington, D.C. education chancellor. And she does not mention things like the cheating scandal in Washington, D.C. or other, you know, less self-aggrandizing, perhaps, um, stories. I might not agree with Nicholas Lehman politically on everything, but here he notes it's almost impossible not to note that Michelle Rhee's entire theory on how to reform schools um, boils down to, as Lehman writes, twisting the dial of educational labor management relations in the direction of management. In other words, union busting that Rhee always paints herself, again, as this radical, the, the underdog who's doing the right thing for children. Um, her nonprofit is called Stand for Children. Um, or, I'm sorry, her nonprofit is Students First. Stand for Children is something else, um, equally evil. But that she's literally backed by the richest people in the world, that she is not the underdog, that she is actually doing the bidding of some very, very, very wealthy people. And it's interesting to note that this article is part of a, a larger trend of sort of pointing out that the emperor has no clothes when it comes to corporate school reform. And I'm quite happy to see this article at the New Republic. I'm quite happy to see this sort of getting traction in mainstream outlets. Um, it goes along with some criticism that we're seeing of Rahm Emanuel's school closing program in Chicago. And Josh, I understand you want to tell us a little bit more about an article about schools and education policy. Yes, the article that is filling my entire body with envy this week is by the truly great journalist and friend Daniel Denver of Philadelphia City Paper. Dan has been covering, along with any number of often depressing and urgent issues in Philadelphia, the ongoing school funding crisis for some time. This story is called, Who's Still Killing Philly Schools? As you might imagine, it's a sequel to an earlier article called, Who's Killing Philly Schools? And Dan digs in a serious way into the very complicated system that has been set up in Philadelphia for school funding, the role of the city and the state, the School Reform Commission, which was created a decade ago as part of a previous round of so-called school reform, and the ongoing push and pull in which various actors in Philadelphia and in the state have repeatedly attempted to tie the desperately needed funding for Philadelphia schools to various so-called reforms. And he points out how, in this case, there is a push being made for things like weakening teachers' job security that do not in and of themselves save the district money, but are being pushed as part of solving the budget crisis because supposedly the advocates for charterization argue that if you weaken the teacher's job security, that will make the school district look better to the state and make it easier to get funding from the state. So he looks into this and some of the other dynamics, the question of what 
Mayor Nutter, the head of the Council of Mayors and a supporter, among others, of Rahm Emanuel, has done, could do, investigates his claims that in many ways his hands are tied. And he looks at the question in the end of the piece of why it is, given how unpopular Pennsylvania's Republican governor Tom Corbett is, given the backlash that there's been about the cuts, something that I got to see when I was in western Pennsylvania reporting for The Nation, why it is that there has not been a stronger organizing effort on the left in Pennsylvania, why it is that people who want more money in schools haven't been more effective at getting it out of the state. Oh, Pennsylvania politics. That brings us to the end of this week's edition, um, episode eight of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, uh, produced by Natasha Lewis um, with executive producer Sarah Leonard. Josh, I assume we'll be back next week, hopefully with an exciting guest for everybody. Looking forward to seeing you soon. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot, we can't go.